Well, fake news is uh, a bit of a phenomenon at the moment. Um, I'm sure most of you will have come across it. It's this uh, scenario, this situation, this phenomenon where news stories are being created deliberately um, on, a, on a daily basis, it seems, uh, that have little, if any, element of truth in them. Some are intentionally deceptive, as we saw during Donald Trump's election campaign when it was claimed that various celebrities had endorsed Trump even when they clearly hadn't. Other fake news stories are designed to be funny, jokes that are meant to be taken at face value. Several uh, uh, fake news websites uh, have been set up in order to, to satirize the media. And real issues can arise when people read these stories out of context and, and treat them for real. And you might have seen there's some Christian ones who, uh, that exist that, that may attempt to make uh, jokes out of um, various aspects of Christian life. I did actually try to find some today, but I, I really honestly didn't find them that amusing, so I didn't, uh, I didn't, bo didn't bother uh, bringing them with me. But bending the truth for gain, and uh, particularly political gain, is nothing new. Uh, before fake news, uh, some of you will remember that we had, we had propaganda uh, during diff various different wars. It was a bit different in that it didn't travel as fast as fake news. It wasn't as instant because we didn't have things like the internet and social media. Social media and indeed the internet has helped fake news become the problem that it is, but fake news and propaganda are similar in the sense that they distort the truth in order to persuade people. And at the center of our passage tonight, uh, there's another form of distorting the truth that's going on, something that goes back further than fake news and propaganda, all the way back to Bible times. This distortion of the truth is called false teaching. And as we'll see, it is a real problem in this passage and in this church. So why don't you turn back to 2 John and we'll study the passage together. If you've closed your Bible, it's on page 1229 of the church Bibles. Before we get into the meat of the, the text, I want us to observe a couple of things by way of introduction. Notice, first of all, who John is writing to. He is... Uh, it's not immediately clear, is it, if we, if we look at who this letter is addressed to. Unlike 3 John, which we'll look at next week, God willing, uh, we don't have the name of the person to whom this letter is addressed. Instead, we read in verse 1 that this letter is written to the lady chosen by God and to her children. Now, it seems from the content of the letter that this lady is in fact a church rather than a person. For a start, the way John professes his love for her in verse 1, and the way he says that it uh, calls her dear lady in verse 5, and the way he says that they should love one another is a bit awkward if it was an actual letter. After all, I don't think this is a romantic letter. I don't think that's John's intention. But leaving that aside, I think the biggest clues that he's writing to a church are in verse 5 and in verse 10. If you look at verse 5, when he says, I am writing, I'm not writing to you, I'm writing you a new command, sorry. That you in the original language is plural. In the same way that Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men to some men who would become his disciples. He wasn't talking to one person, he was speaking to a group who would become his disciples. And, and that is the same here. John is speaking to a group. And it's a plural you in verse 10 as well when John says, if anyone comes to you, again, another plural you. So John is writing to a church rather than an actual lady. 
And it's not uncommon in the Bible, as Liam mentioned this morning, for the church to be described in this way. For example, in Ephesians 5, Christ is likened to a husband and the church as his wife. And in Revelation, the church is described as the bride of Christ. And this helps us make sense of the references to children in the very first verse of 2 John and in the very last verse. These children are members of the church. And the sister in the last verse is therefore another congregation, another, another church. So in John's introduction, he addresses a church and then notice in his introduction that he drops some big hints about what he's going to write about or what he's going to, yeah, why, why he's writing to them, I should say. Let me read the verses at the start again and see if you spot them. The elder to the lady chosen by God and to her children whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son will be with us in truth and love. I'm sure you spotted the repeated verses there. It's very repeated words there. Four times in the opening verses, John mentions truth, and twice he mentions love. We know in our own lives that when we're speaking, we tend to repeat the things that are important to us. You know around somebody's birthday, they'll quite often drop in the fact that it's their birthday, and they won't want you to forget that it's their birthday. They might even write on your calendar that it's their birthday. It's so important to them, they wouldn't want you to forget. And in a similar way, John wants us to get the message that truth and love are important to what he's going to say. He's flagging it up now. He repeats these two words again and again in these opening three verses, and they're crucial to our understanding of what this letter is all about. From the very start of this little letter, John is holding up these two Christian characteristics, these two marks of a true Christian. And he's doing that on the one hand to commend this little church for displaying these characteristics, and on the other hand, to warn them about deceivers, false teachers who have compromised the truth and who don't really love. So John's writing, in effect, to say, well done on the one hand, but also watch out on the other. And this evening, as we come to understand what this passage means, we're going to look at it in two parts. The first thing I want you to see is John's encouragement to the church to keep walking in the truth. To keep walking in the truth. Notice in verse 4 that Paul is rejoicing to find some of the children, that is, some of the church members, walking in the truth. This is the truth of the gospel, the truth about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the truth that Jesus was sent to this earth by his Father, that he lived a perfect life, that he died for our sins as was promised in the Bible, that he was buried and raised on the third day, and that he appeared to the disciples and many other people, and that he ascended to heaven and is now at the Father's right hand before he one day returns to take all those who have trusted him to be with him. That is the truth that this church are walking in, and John is rejoicing in this. Now, the culture that we live in doesn't really like such exclusive truth claims, does it? In our church, or not our church, our culture, I should say, truth is personal rather than universal. It's subjective rather than objective. People might say, that might be true for you, but it's not true for me. The Christian view about truth, however, is so different. The Bible teaches that Jesus is the truth. We read in uh, another book that John wrote called John's Gospel that Jesus says he is the way, the truth, and the life. So if you're a Christian here tonight, you know the truth, the eternal, unchanging, universal truth of the Gospel. As a Christian, you also have the truth about what God is like. 
You have the truth about humanity and what we are like. You have the truth about evil and suffering, the truth about mortality, and the truth about happen, what happens when we die. And in our passage tonight, we find John rejoicing that some were walking in the truth. Maybe you know how John feels. Maybe you have uh, led a Sunday school class or a, some kind of Christian camp or Christianity Explored or something like that. And you've wondered how people who've been on your activity have gone on in the Lord, whether any have continued in the faith. And you hear many years later about one of them that they're going on well in the Christian life, that they're sharing their faith in the workplace, uh, that they're committed to serving the Lord in some way, maybe even teaching in some capacity themselves. What a joy this is when you hear this news. Or even better, if you bump into the person and meet them face to face. It's a real cause for rejoicing. And this is how John feels when he hears that the believers who are faithful under his ministry are still growing in their faith, still walking in the truth. He rejoices at that. He rejoices because he knows it's the best thing that they could be doing with their lives. But notice also that he, he knows that many who start the Christian walk will give in to pressure to abandon their faith or the pressure to embrace false teaching. And some have clearly done that. You see that in verse 4 where he says, some of your children are walking in the truth. Some, but not all, are walking in the truth. And many of us know only too well what that feels like. We rejoice at people that we've known over many years who are walking in the truth. But it's still only some. There's many people who we grew up with or, or who are in our families, who we love, who are not walking in the truth at this time. And this text shows us that it's always been this way. And we need to keep praying for these people, that they'd come back to the truth and that they'd walk in it. But John is not just writing to tell this church how he's feeling about them. He's writing in verses 5 and 6 to instruct them, to encourage them, to exhort them to do something. Not something new, as we see in verse 5. He says specifically that he's not writing a new commandment. Rather, it's one that they've had from the beginning. In other words, the testimony of the eyewitnesses to Jesus, the, the settled truths about who Jesus was and what he did. And what is this not-so-new commandment? Well, verse 5 says again, it's the commandment to love, to love one another. Now, some people might think that's a little bit strange. We talk about falling in love, love being an emotion. It seems like an involuntary thing, something that just happens to us. It's to do with our feelings and our hearts. How can you command somebody to love? How can you command people to love one another? Well, John is clear that you, you can, that, that it can be done, so much so that he repeats himself in verse 6, just in case we, we, we misunderstand or we miss it. As you have heard from the beginning, it says in verse 6, his command is that you walk in love. Some people, even in this room tonight, might shy away from such language. We might shy away from the idea of describing the Christian life in terms of commandments to obey. We already know that the world thinks Christianity is a list of do's and don'ts, and so we don't want to contribute to uh, this legalistic view. After all, the Christian message says that we're saved by faith in Christ Jesus, not by works, by grace, not by law, and by Christ, not commands. We know that salvation is a gift that God generously gives, not something that we can earn. And John knows that too. That's how he can say in the, in the, in the, the letter over the page in 1 John, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. John knows that salvation is a gift. He's not, de he's not denying that. He knows that it's been lavished on us by God the Father. 
and yet John is clearly given a command. What is he, what is he getting at? Well, it's this. He wants to remind the church that the right response to God's gift of salvation is to honor and to serve. Our gratitude motivates our obedience to do what God commands. Let me say that again. Our gratitude motivates our obedience to do what God commands. The Christian life is quite simple then in that sense. We want to please our Creator Father and His Son, our Savior, not to get in their good books. That's not, it's not possible. Rather, we do what God commands in response to what He has done for us in Christ Jesus. And the command, quite clearly in verse 5, is that the church love one another. I think it's so interesting that He does that. <clears throat> it's so, so realistic. If loving people was easy, uh, if loving people came natural to us, it wouldn't need to be commanded. So often we don't feel like we're in a loving sort of mood. It takes effort. And to be honest, people are so unlovable, and I include myself in that. Why would we want to love them? Well, the Bible encourages us to see that love as an action, love as an action, to see it as an action as the costly giving of ourselves to other people. <coughs> Excuse me. Turn back one page to First John chapter three, verse eighteen, and we'll see how John spells it out there. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in the truth. John's point is that love is a verb. The love John commands is shown in actions and in truth. If we're truly walking in the truth of the gospel, we'll not be aloof or detached from one another. We'll step forward towards one another in love. We'll not be unmoved by each other's situations. We'll love one another. And this is how we know that... Uh, from other parts of Scripture, that an unbelieving world will know that we're Christ's disciples if we have love for one another. And notice how in John's mind, truth and love cannot be separated. When he loves this dear lady, this church, in verse 1, he loves in the truth. If the truth of the gospel has really gripped us, if we're walking in the truth, then that leads to love. When we understand what God has done for us, we can't not love him in return. And we love others too, don't we? When we understand the grace that we've been shown by God and given his son for our sins, it compels us to be gracious to other people. When we understand the mercy and the kindness that God has shown us, then we want to be merciful and kind to other people. The truth that we know fuels the love that we show. The key is knowing and experiencing the truth of the gospel. John also wrote this next uh, little section, in, again in 1 John. This is love, not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we, so loved us, we'll also, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. As God loved us and as we come to know and experience that love, we ought to love others. Real Christians, John would say, those who are walking in the truth, they love. We love. We love God. We love our neighbors. We love our enemies because God first loved us. And this is a real challenge, isn't it? To love people. But I think John gives us the secret to it. 
keep walking in the truth. And as you keep walking in that truth, your, your knowledge of who God is will grow. As you know more about the holiness of God and as you know more about the sinfulness of man, the cost that Christ has, has paid for us, then your attitude towards God and towards other sinners will be changed. As your knowledge of God grows, so will your love for him and other people. Therefore, if you're a Christian, do as John is encouraged and keep walking in the truth. And if you're finding that hard just now, take some time this week to spend time in his word, reflecting on what he has done for you and let that fuel your love for him and for his people. Okay, the second thing that I'd like us to notice from what John is saying is keep away from false teachers. Keep away from false teachers. We see that in verses 7 to 11. In this scenario that, that John is talking about, it's clear that false teachers are on the prowl. We see that in verse 7, don't we? I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. So the reason John wants the church to keep walking in the truth and love is because there are many deceivers, false teachers about. Some people are walking in the truth in verse 4, but many people are deceivers in verse 7. And what is the basic message of this false teaching? Well, we see it in verse 7. They don't acknowledge Jesus Christ came in the flesh. That means they don't believe that he was a man who walked this earth. Now, maybe you're new to Christianity and you don't really see what the problem is with that. Some people didn't believe that Jesus came to earth as a man. What, what's the problem? Big deal. Why is that false teaching? Well, Jesus coming in the flesh is central to the Christian message. It's not one of these things that Christians can agree to disagree over. It's central to the Christian message because it's central to who Jesus is and to what he did. Jesus coming in the flesh is what we call the incarnation of Christ. You might think that sounds a bit technical, but you will have heard of it before, I'm sure. <coughs> Every Christmas we sing about it. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hailed incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. And that is what the false teachers denied. They denied that he was fully human and fully God. They denied that he was veiled in flesh and the Godhead. They denied that he was incarnate and the deity. And it wasn't just in John's time that that's, that that's been an issue. At various points in church history, people have denied that Jesus was fully man as well as fully God. And the church has denounced such teaching as false teaching. You see, the incarnation of Jesus Christ is central to the Christian understanding of, who God, of how God would purchase our freedom from sin, our redemption. You see, since the fall of man, the only way to be made right with God is through the blood of an innocent sacrifice. Jesus was the final perfect sac sacrifice that satisfied God's wrath forever against sin. And his div div divine nature, the fact that he is God, made him fit for the work of a redeemer. Yet it was his coming in the flesh, his human body, that allowed him to shed the blood necessary to redeem us. No human being with a sinful nature could pay this debt. No one else could meet the requirements to become the sacrifice for sins of the whole world. 
but because Jesus came in the flesh, he alone could pay the debt that we owed to God. His victory over death and the grave won the victory for everyone who puts their trust in him. And if you're here tonight and you've not done that yet, would love to talk to you about that to make that next step. If you came with somebody tonight, you could, you could easily talk to them. Or if you're on your own, there'll be people here afterwards who would love to talk to you and pray with you. So Jesus coming in the flesh does matter. It's crucial. It's central to the Christian message. It's to deny it is false teaching. And that's why John wants the church to keep walking in the truth and love and to keep away from these false teachers. And notice that he doesn't pull any punches about what he thinks of these false teachers. They are deceivers and the Antichrist. As I say, this is not something that as Christians we could just agree to disagree over. It's wrong teaching. It's heresy. It's of the devil. And to hammer this point home, John says in verse 9, that these people do not have God because they've run ahead. They're not continuing in the teaching of Christ. What he means is they're doing exactly the opposite of what John encouraged the church to do earlier in the letter. They've left behind what they heard at the beginning. They're not walking in obedience to God's commands. And notice how John says to the church that they're not immune to this themselves. He urges them to, to watch out in verse 8, to be on guard. Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Similarly, in, in, in verse 10, if any of these deceivers turn up on your doorstep, don't let them in your house. Don't even welcome them, he says, or you'll be guilty by association. He says you'll be sharing in their wicked work. John's point is that they are not immune to doctrinal error. John and his colleagues had worked hard for the church and he did not want wrong doctrine to destroy the church and them not to be fully rewarded for their faithful service. And yet he's rejoicing that some are walking in this truth. Even still, he wants them to keep focused on that, focused on the truth and living it out in love and not to become influenced by false teachers, to keep grounding in what they heard from the beginning through the eyewitness accounts of Jesus. This is a bit of a challenge for us, I think, isn't it? In our culture, old stuff is generally not that popular. People always want, want new things, new phones, new clothes, new this and that. But when it comes to doctrine, when it comes to Bible teaching, we mustn't give in to that way of thinking. When someone says that they've got some new teaching, be really cautious about it. New teaching is just often old heresies repackaged. John is trying to protect his readers from this. Rather, he says, than running ahead and leaving behind the message of Christ, he wants them to abide in the teaching of Christ that they've heard from the beginning. So is this a warning against hospitality? A warning against having people stay at your house? A warning against signing up for Airbnb? No, I don't think that is the case. That would go against all the other commands to offer hospitality. Romans 12 says emphatically, practice hospitality. 1 Timothy 3 and Titus have similar instructions. As Christians, we're even expected to show hospitality to complete strangers. Hebrews 13 says, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. We're also to love our enemies, to love our neighbors, and to love one another. Now, I think this warning is about the exceptional circumstances 
when an individual is intent on poisoning the church with their false teaching. And it really is about the church. Remember I said that the U in verse 10 is plural. John isn't particularly talking about individual houses. It's the church that he's got in view. Now, I can see good reasons why you wouldn't want to let a false teacher come and stay in your spare room. But I think John's main concern here is the gathered church and what is taught there. He doesn't want heretics welcomed into the church meeting and given pulpit slots for their heresies. You might not think this is a likely issue in this day and age or in, in this church. Well, I would argue that it's easier than ever for deceivers and the Antichrist to get to your, your attention. It's easier than ever for you to share in their wicked work, as John calls it. And that's because in John's day, false teachers had to be physically present. They had to be physically with the people they were teaching heresies to. But the truth is, nowadays, the church is not the only place that people hear preaching. Nowadays, you just need to take your remote control and select one of these so-called Christian TV channels, and you'll find a who's who of false teachers asking for your money and teaching a false gospel. Or click on the wrong internet link, and you could be filling your mind with teaching that claims to be Christian, but it's just not. Using John's language, it's of the Antichrist. This was brought home to me recently in a class at seminary. We were being taught by a, a really experienced pastor who'd done lots of uh, visitation over decades. He'd been in many, many people's homes, sometimes unannounced, uh, sometimes not. And he said to us really specifically that we are kidding ourselves if we think that when we're pastors, we're the only voice that our congregation is listening to. He said he'd been in numerous homes where the TV was on and there were false teachers on the screen spouting all manner of things that were contrary to the gospel. And when he challenged the people that he was meeting, it was clear that watching these channels was just a, a regular part of their routine. He said you could look on their bookshelves and you would see that they were reading books by these same false teachers. And so that's a challenge to us, isn't it? Who are we listening to outside of our church gathering? Do you watch such pe people that this, this pastor was referring to? Do you read such people? Do you, do you, um, do you listen to their, their stuff online? These people who deny central Christian doctrine. Even if you're just doing it out of curiosity, John's description of these people is clear. They are the deceiver. They are the antichrist. And John's warning to us is clear. Do not take them into your house or welcome them or their teaching, whether they're on a screen or an MP3. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. Well, that raises a bit of a question for us, doesn't it? How, how do you get help to find out if a book is good or a, a teacher is good? How do you get help with these things? If you're looking for a book on theology or some other aspect of Christian living, what do you do? Well, I'd encourage you to speak to the folk on, on the bookstall. They've got a carefully selected bunch of books that they would love to, to share with you. Excuse me. In addition, Ian Cameron, one of our elders, <clears throat> has been putting together a, a, a reading list for members, and we're hoping to stock these books at the bookstall as well. So watch out for that happening. Get get involved with these these books. Stretch your, your mind and your 
your heart as you grapple with different elements of, of Christian living and, and Christian doctrine. Another way the elders protect the flock from false teaching is through our, our membership process. I know this divides opinion a little bit. Some people like the process because it's an opportunity to, to meet the elders and to find out a little bit more about the church and to find out how they can serve and, and how they can serve other people. But I know that other people find it a little bit nerve-wracking, a bit daunting. And while we can always improve the way that we, we do these things, we make no apology for having such a process in place. It's part of the way that we guard the flock from those who would wish to come in and destroy. <coughs> Excuse me. We very rarely refuse membership applications, but we do do it. And we will continue to do so if it is clear that the person believes a false gospel and wants to bring this teaching into our church. I'm not talking about young Christians who are still working things out, uh, maybe don't have uh, you know, a full understanding of things. That's not, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who are deliberately set about trying to, to bring in poison, to bring in false teaching to this church. It's part of the elders' role to, uh, to guard the flock in this way from such teaching. So this little letter is, on the one hand, a, a real encouragement, and it's also a warning, isn't it? It's an encouragement to keep on walking in the truth of the gospel and to walk in love for God and our neighbor. But it's also a warning to keep away from false teachers. Don't, don't dabble in that stuff. Don't, just, don't look at it with curiosity. It is heretical. It is the antichrist. It, it, these people are deceivers. So let's... As we go from here today, as we go into this week, embrace this encouragement and heed this warning as we walk in obedience to what God commands. Let's pray together.